welcome to the Hopkins Green Tea, an energy podcast brought to you by the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. My name is Amethyst Devlin, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Shada Hushmandi, Abigail Hunter, Leonie Kita. In our last episode, we brought on a guest to help us dive deep into the topic of greenwashing. If you haven't had the chance to listen yet, please do and let us know if there are any more questions that you'd like us to answer on that topic. This episode, we're taking on yet another complex energy topic, this time energy governance. We brought on another qualified guest for this topic. Shada, would you please introduce our guest? All right. Thanks, Amethyst. Our guest, Jesse Young, brings a wealth of experience to our podcast today as the senior advisor to John Kerry, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. He has contributed to both domestic and global climate policies for years. This is not the first time Jesse has been a crucial part of U.S. climate policy efforts. He also served in the Obama administration in the same capacity, playing a key role in the negotiations of the Paris Agreement in the 2015. Prior to his work in government, Jesse worked for Senator Chris Murphy on Hill and also honed his expertise in strategic communications and climate finance within the nonprofit sector. It's so exciting for all of us uh, that Jesse is a CISA too, and he holds an MA in global policy and graduated in 2019. Jesse, it's truly an honor to have you join us on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. Jesse, it's worth noting that you are the lead guitarist for Lush, the Washington DC local cover band that was voted the best in 2022 by the Washington City paper. Before we dive into your work in the White House, I'm curious, and I'm sure everyone else in the room is curious too, which do you find more accelerating, your passion for music or your political pursuits? My, uh, Pick one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no disrespect to my professional career, it's the musical stuff, right? Because the stuff you don't do is your job is often the stuff you get energy from and you recharge and has nothing to do with what I do during the day. It's something I've been passionate about long before I discovered politics or public policy, but I love climate change too. Wait, I have to ask, have mm-hmm. you jammed out with Secretary Blinken? Because I understand he's in his own guitar, his own band too. People are always asking me. He has uh, yet to raise the topic with me, but I would love to. Yeah, he has a couple songs on Spotify. I've, I actually saw him play in the Obama years in the State Department. He's not a bad guitarist, uh, but the opportunity has not presented itself. <laughs> Maybe really? you're going away party. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's the best to ask. Surprise, surprise appearance. <laughs> the, our first question is, uh, what is the international climate governance? And why do we need it? And can you explain that with like a famous example? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So in my experience, it's basically sort of the system that has been worked out across an ad hoc series of international agreements. I think the one people are most familiar with is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, which started in the early 90s, but includes a lot of other related subsidiary agreements, including the Montreal Protocol and Substance the ozone layer that all interact to basically provide a series of international fora where national level governments come together and try and figure out what to do about various elements of the climate challenge, whether it's shipping in the International Maritime Organization or country level emissions in the UNFCCC. There, most governments in their foreign ministries, their energy ministries, their finance ministries have a, a core group of negotiators that basically work on these things full time. I've worked with the State Department team on this for years and years. 
the reason it's it's important is is I think pretty obvious, right? It's a global commons problem. No country is solely responsible for climate. By the same token, no country individually can solve the climate change challenge. The atmosphere is agnostic as to where a ton of emissions is generated. It all has the same planet warming effect. So there's no unilateral solution to climate change. It must, by definition, be a multilateral solution. We can get into how the Paris Agreement functions and how it was designed to remedy the failures of some previous agreements, but I think it's the best shot we have at actually pushing the global community forward on tackling climate change. So this is this is a great segue to my question because you mentioned the need for um, multilateral engagement, but there is some kind of requirement in the space for unilateral action to kind of justify some of these diplomatic engagements and encouraging other countries to also up their commitments. Um, so up until a couple of years ago, we didn't even have a nationally determined contribution, which um, is required under the Paris Climate Accord um, when you started in your position. What was it like before we had some of these big legislative packages that tackle climate at home when you were going kind of exporting climate policy abroad? Did, did it feel like, you know, any level of hypocrisy or did you guys get pushback at all? Um, there's always a tension in the system between what countries commit to on an international level and what they prepare to deliver domestically, right? Just because you say you are going to do something in international fora does not guarantee follow through. Right. We know there will be significant admission savings. If every country on earth follows through with its existing Paris commitments, not every country in the world is equipped to do that. And so that was an open question mark in the Obama years. It was very much an open question mark in the Trump years. And it's still a question mark. We're obviously in a much better position now to meet the goal that the president announced, the new US NDC, National Determined Contribution, as you were referring to earlier, the president announced in April 2021, following the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. We have all of the tools we think we need to get there by 2030. The devil is in the details, of course. You need to roll out all these programs. You need uptake. You need them to be efficiently um, processed. But yes, I think it gives us a lot more credibility to point out that we are trying to walk the walk to the extent we can here in the US. That doesn't answer the mail, of course, for other countries that you know, are not the printer of the world's reserve currency, right? They don't have the ability to enact their own IRAs within their borders for a range of economic, financial, monetary reasons. And so their, their question to us, and it was certainly the case at the recent, most recent COP meeting in Egypt, is can you help us do the same? Can you help us get there? Obviously, it's a spur to do the same among a lot of developed OECD countries, but a lot of poor emerging economies are looking for concessionary finance and concessional finance and other types of finance to help them reach those levels. And they are looking for a hand up, not a handout. And there is insufficient finance in the system right now to help a lot of countries get there. So we try to be, I think, have some humility about this question. The solution is not for the U.S. to pass the IRA and say, we did it, yeah. you know, yeah. spike the football, but to figure <laughs> out how to engage other countries to make similar to make similar gains, or in the case of a lot of emerging economies, avoid emissions as they develop going mm -hmm. forward. I'm glad that you brought up the climate finance and the mm -hmm. issue with the finance. Uh, so every time I've, I've monitored uh, COPs for, as a journalist for, for years, and every time we come out of a COP, mm -hmm. including the Egypt one, um, the, the main issue is really the climate finance. So um, the how, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how hard is it to negotiate on the climate finance and what are the trade-offs? It's a really good question. Um, so I have never been a like in the trenches technical negotiator in these processes. I'm always like political advisors wandering around doing a lot of different things, but I spend a lot of time with our finance team and several generations of US finance negotiators. And it's perhaps the toughest job. It's one of the toughest jobs. As you say, this is the lifeblood of the system. If the Paris Agreement is an engine, international climate finance is the fuel. 
all these countries can make these commitments, but they don't have the money to actually implement them or the technical assistance to make them a reality. It's not going to do anyone a lot of good. And to this point, um, the world has failed to raise sufficient sums to accomplish that transition in the time scale we need. Developed countries set out this $100 billion target more than 10 years ago. It was supposed to reach about $100 billion of international climate finance in 2020. We didn't get there for a range of reasons. In the middle of an international pandemic, the previous administration was very committed to rolling back most of the things we were doing on international climate. Mm -hmm. So that suggests a couple of things. Developed countries need to redouble their efforts. We should also look at increasing the donor pool. If we're just relying on the same countries and the same treasuries to provide public finance to reach this goal, we need to be a bit more innovative about how we get there. We need to have better leverage ratios. If, if indeed the world needs multiple trillions of dollars a year for this transition, you're not going to be able to pump that kind of money out of public treasuries. There just isn't, right. there isn't the power to do that right now. Right. And so you have to find new sources of innovative finance. You have to find new, sort, new countries that are willing to contribute. But it is an understandable and, and completely rational, I think, sense of frustration for a lot of developed countries who feel like they have not been given the, the financial tools to meet a lot of the targets they're setting for themselves. Do you reckon like um, an international like carbon price could help or like having a multi-sovereign fund, mm -hmm. um, especially for that um, south and global mm -hmm. north and south kind of help? And also, I'd love to hear if you think either of those things are possible, <laughs> in yeah. addition to whether or not they're helpful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, in practice. Um, an international carbon price would be great. I just don't know how you ever get there. Yeah. Like, the practical yeah. challenge strikes me as impossible. Like, we can, you know, we struggle to sometimes implement pretty basic international pollution control regimes. Mm -hmm. How you would assess a multinational carbon price where the differences, not just let set aside the differences between countries and the carbon intensity of the industry, the differences between different regions in countries in terms of their carbon intensity would make it pretty difficult to administer. So I'm no expert on, on international carbon prices, but the structure of the Paris Agreement is basically our bottom-up process, right? It right. encourages countries to set targets that, rec that recognize the maximum level of climate ambition they can set within their borders and then provides them tools to get there. A top-down system has been tried before in this space, and it failed miserably. It's called the Kyoto Protocol. Right. And so I am always conscious of trying to uh, <laughs> reinvent the wheel when the wheel is the Kyoto Protocol, because we learned a lot of very <laughs> hard lessons that cost us 15 years in this process that yeah. I'm loath to repeat. Yeah. Um, a multi-sovereign fund, I don't really know particularly well. Is this basically the idea that sovereign wealth funds pool their money? Yeah. Um, I think it's a good idea. We've spent a lot of time engaging with a lot of the more notable sovereign wealth funds. I think there are a lot of challenges in there in that the sovereign wealth funds are still investment funds. They need a rate of return. For a lot of climate investments, there are no rates of return. Most adaptation investments, we've still not cracked the code on how you generate a rate of return for moving communities, dealing with really severe losses due to climate change, and adapting to those impacts over time. I don't know what... I would love to know what part of the solution sovereign wealth funds can be in meeting the really gaping adaptation financing challenge. I think they're certainly part of the solution, but I don't know if they're going to be the, the force multiplier we need. But again, I'm not, I'm not super knowledgeable on that front. Um, because even like when the Inflation Reduction Act passed, mm -hmm. you know, we, we took a little bit of a deep dive into like the equity considerations that have yeah. been put into that mm -hmm. funding and that we were bringing a lot of domestic funding um, here to ensure that communities that have been um, you know, just like really set to fail in a lot of these uh, develop as we developed our industries here, um, we're getting the assistance they needed. And when we look mm -hmm. at climate finance too, I mean, we're looking at countries that w were kind of um, 
playing this like overarching role of saying like, well, you need to develop, the, you need to learn all the lessons that we mm-hmm. um, that we have learned now after we've succeeded mm-hmm. in building our economies up, and now you have to take those lessons um, and and find funding for it, right? Yeah. Like you have to be able to develop a better way than we mm-hmm. did um, and prosper like we are. <laughs> but, but how do you, you know, like how do you really answer that question mm-hmm. of like helping your your own mm-hmm. country with, with policies like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, but then also like taking that accountability of we have to help them leapfrog that technology mm-hmm. and that takes money ultimately. It's a great point. And that's sort of, you know, the central lesson of, of development policy is, is the solution here is not for rich countries to tell developing economies what to do. It's to try and show them a way and provide the tools if they want to go there. We, we do not control the destinies of these countries. There is an obvious tension in all of this that a lot of countries in the developing world say, this, you know, the developed world is preaching, do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. We would love to, ha- they want to have the same middle-class prosperity that we've had in this country for decades and decades. The point I think we put to them, and it's sincerely felt, is, of course, you can go ahead and you can run your economy on coal and oil and gas for the next 60 years. There are significant costs and there is a better way, right? Even the United States, I don't think anyone, despite the economic prosperity delivered, thinks that the presence of Superfund sites, brownfields, the body burden of cancer and COPD and heart disease, the burning fossil fuels for 100 years is left in this country. That's bad. Mm-hmm. There, are, there was no alternative technology at the time. We are now presented with the bad option and the much less bad option. The much less bad option is now cost competitive with the bad option, if not less expensive in most parts of the world. So let us help you get there. Yeah. As you say, leapfrog the nasty stuff. Because if, you know, as we always make the point right now, countries are free in many geographies to build a coal plant. The operating life of a typical coal plant is 40, 50, 60 years. If you build that plant, if we're going to stand under the global carbon budget, you will be shutting it down. You'll be taking a loss on that plant. It will be an economic disaster if you finance that because you will not be able to run it. It will provide electricity to no one. It will throw off new revenue. It will throw off no revenue. So don't do that. Don't do the thing that's going to hurt you and cost you more money than the alternative. But again, you can't force people to do that. You can just try and make the most effective and persuasive case possible. There are countries like uh, India and Nigeria, mm-hmm. specifically, that they support both clean energy and fossil fuel. Um, India is a classic mm-hmm. example uh, that invests heavily in solar and is the third largest renewable market uh, mm-hmm. in the world, but also supports coal, and the government actually owns most coal plants, while also internationally pushing back on having a coal transition. Mm-hmm. And then the example is... Um, in the case of a just transition partnership with G7. In the world of climate diplomacy, how would you deal with cases like India? It's the central challenge, right? And we deal with that in our own countries too, right? There's a Mm -hmm. lot of economic growth linked to extractive industries broadly, but fossil fuel extraction specifically. Um, The the Ur example of this is, is the government of the People's Republic of China. There, I believe it's still the case, the largest producer of renewable technologies producing more than the rest of the world combined. They are also by far the largest producer and financier of coal-fired power plants. So you want them to do more of the good thing and less of the bad thing. And you want them to respect human rights um, in the process. It is hard to go to these countries and just say, of course, shut down all of your fossil fuel plants and stop all of your mining economy. Millions and millions of people in India are either directly or indirectly employed by the coal mining industry. It's to show them what you were referring to. 
what is the just transition pathway to get off of these things? In the same way that we are not going to go to people who extract coal in American Appalachia or drill for oil in the outer continental shelf, we're not suggesting we just fire all of them and they go find something else to do. You have to help retire those facilities, make people whole, train people, provide them entryways into the industries of the future. This is, you know, as much a challenge in Germany as it is here. And I think no one has found the magic solution. It's incredibly capital intensive. It's time intensive. We don't, we, we don't really have, I think, a good model that we can deploy internationally yet. That's the, why the Just Energy Transition Partnerships, the JetPs that you're talking about are country specific. There's one in South Africa. Um, there's one in Indonesia. There's one in Vietnam. We're working one on India. The challenges are so different in each country. In, in Indonesia, it's a question of avoided deforestation and helping provide baseload electricity to a lot of the outerlying lines and there are outerlying <laughs> islands in their archipelago. It's yeah. hard to say. Um, in a lot of other countries in South Africa, it's about reforming and restructuring the debt of their state-owned utility. So in all of those, I think there's a lot of thought as to what do you do about workers? What do you do about people who are impacted at the ground level? But yes, it is never going to countries and saying, just fire everyone and figure it out. And uh, is that welcome? That kind of advice? Like, not, not firing, obviously, yeah. but like... <laughs> What you said, is it is it mostly welcomed by... I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, it varies from country to country, but the main thing they were looking for is financial assistance, right? Yeah. And a lot of countries, they would have done this if they had the ability to until now. So the JetP is a multi-donor platform to help countries come together and say, here are the tools we're offering. Here's the pathway we think you could take. Let us know if you want to do it. Right. I have to say, I really appreciate you bringing back a lot of our questions to the US and our mm -hmm. own challenges. It mm -hmm. really... It really feels like it's humanizing some of these mm -hmm. things because obviously this is the country that we live in mm -hmm. and we see these things. I have friends who work in like the last mile um, reaching different communities in rural areas, providing electricity, and it's a similar challenge mm -hmm. in other um, lower income countries. And so I appreciate that perspective. Before you worked for Special Presidential Envoy Kerry um, and you took some time in between administrations, you worked for um, the Obama administration in a similar role. I'd be curious to hear kind of what felt different between that administration and this administration and what it was like for you in that interim period where mm. we kind of took a back seat to the climate engagement uh, internationally. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of the, there's like the practical experience, which was, you know, we worried that the United States pledging to withdraw from the Paris Agreement in 2017 would fundamentally destabilize the agreement, that other countries would leave it would lose all its practical and moral force. No one would meet their commitments. The whole thing would sort of fly apart. That didn't happen. If anything, the opposite happened, right? At the time, I believe there were only two countries, Syria and Nicaragua, that had not pledged to take domestic actions to join the Paris Agreement. After we pulled out, they both announced they would. Wow. So you basically had everyone at the table. Yeah. Took some time to get everyone get, get there, but it, it reaffirmed the rest of the world's commitment to the goals of the Paris Agreement. Now, it was not without cost, of course, the United States played a central role in negotiating and birthing the Paris Agreement, having us basically taking our chips and going home, threatened the agreement. It threatened the pace of change, the finances available to move forward, our moral and diplomatic leadership. But it didn't destroy the agreement. The Paris Agreement was still there for this administration to come back into four years later. Um, emotionally, it was just devastating. Yeah. I mean, and I was not alone in this. There are many, many people in civil society and the governance who spent their careers working on this stuff. I mean... Several of my bosses I've had over the years, the first climate envoy in the Obama administration, Todd Stern, Jonathan Pershing, who was one of our deputy envoys in this administration, the previous administration, 
Sue Biniaz, who's one of our deputy envoys here, who's been a lawyer at State forever. These people have been working on this stuff since the late 80s. They've been there for the UNFCCC. They've been there for Kyoto. Bali Action Plan. This was their lives. And I cannot imagine. I've been doing it for 15 years. They've been doing it for 30 or 40. I just felt incredibly bereft. It was rough to hear, you know, the previous president make a speech from the Rose Garden that the thing you've spent your professional life working on is a moral disaster and a secret plot by the Chinese government to destroy American manufacturing. You know it's not true, but his megaphone is bigger than yours, and he has four years to basically smash all of the crockery in the China shop. So, yeah, there was a, there was a fair amount of drinking, a lot of commiserating, um, but I think everyone realized that we had a role to play on the outside. Both my friends who stayed in government in career roles and both those who were booted out like me who did not have a role in the previous administration, that... You want to bring cities, states, companies, universities, tribal councils to the table. You want to go overseas and make it clear to other countries that the administration does not speak for the bulk of the American public on this issue. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is not the only American whose voice counts on climate change. That's true of this administration, too. Yeah. So you didn't go far in your time in between administrations, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you were still attending similar events, seeing mm -hmm. your international contacts. With grad school here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Did, how were other people's reactions to you in this space? Like when you were at these types of engagements, were they equally as shocked? How did they, because you talked about kind of the higher level response, mm -hmm. but on an individual level, like what was that engagement like? It's a good question. It varied by audience. I think the message was always, listen, the U.S., the broad majority of the public in the United States are still committed to this process and this issue. Here's all the things we're going to do. Donald Trump is not president for life. This will end at some point. There are going to be folks in Congress who will hold him accountable. There are a lot of other forces in our society that are going to limit the ability of he could do damage. That said, the president's foreign policy powers are pretty broad compared yeah. to the rest of his influence. So he's able to do a lot of stuff that I was not happy about. But, um, you know, the central challenge is explaining to people when they say, will the U.S. come back and can we trust the U.S. when they come back? We've done this twice now, as you yeah. all know better than I do. We helped negotiate the Kyoto Protocol. The Senate basically voted not to move forward with it. George W. Bush administration formally withdrew us from it. The Obama administration negotiated the Paris Agreement. The Trump administration withdrew us. The Biden administration returned us to the agreement. There are no other countries in the world that do this. It's seesaw in out of major multinational agreements. Mm -hmm. So we have a credibility challenge. Yeah. People are happy to have us back in, happy to have the U.S. engage, the president, John Kerry, Secretary Blinken, Janet Yellen, Jake Sullivan, all of those folks. But they want to know, will it last? Because they watch the political debate in this country. I've done this for a long time, and I'm not aware of another country anywhere in the world, developed, developing, any region, where there's a sustained domestic debate on the validity of climate science. It's pretty alarming, and you have to explain that to people, that yes, there are a lot of people doing their best on this country, but we are dealing with a political topography that is really challenging. There's one political party in this country that is still wrestling with itself over how to address climate change. And that is just not the case in most other countries, certainly in Europe, from the right to the left, you have a consensus that this is a problem. Now, there are big divergences on the policy question. As I always say, it's really difficult to figure out how to reform and improve our healthcare system in this country, and everyone, both parties, agree that it's a problem. The healthcare system could be doing better. It's hard to find bipartisan solutions to a problem when you have one participant at the table that is still conflicted about whether the problem exists, yeah. or if it exists, whether we can do anything about it, or whether doing anything about it represents economic suicide. And so that's tough. And that's, this administration had to deal with it. God knows the Obama administration had to deal with it. The Clinton administration had to deal with it too over Kyoto. So I don't think 
I don't think there's any truly reassuring message you can give to other countries on that front, except that we think our politics will improve over time on this question, because the problem is so self-evidently severe. Yeah, so bringing back uh, the global view, like, as you say, yeah, each country has a different situation and they are tackling their own, uh, their own problems. And also there is a lot of institutions in the world, uh, such as like International Energy Agency, World Bank, or United Nations, but none of them are, are integrated. And, but we, as a human on this, uh, this planet, we need to work on the climate change together. Mm -hmm. So it would be a difficult question for you, but in your perspective, how should international climate governance ideally operate in order to tackle the climate change and achieve the t two degree goal on Paris Agreement? You know, the, the Paris Agreement and being a bottom-up agreement is not structured like the Kyoto Protocol where you set all the targets at the international level and you provide sanction if you don't meet them basically ask countries to come to the table to pledge to do as much as they can on climate, and then over time you ratchet up the ambition, right? You come back to the table every five years, there's a review and transparency mechanism in the Paris Agreement that says, are countries meeting their goals? If not, why? What more can be done? So that there is sort of salutary pressure over time to increasingly um, do more to tackle climate change, and it also assumes that the financial and technological tools get easier to access over time. As more people crowd in finance and technological know-how, this stuff just gets cheaper. It's not asking people to take a larger and larger financial hit over time. It's asking people to recognize that the economic calculus is growing more favorable at all times. So again, it varies country to country. I mean, I think the thing our office is engaged with most right now is basically queuing in on the world's largest emitters that don't have 1.5 degrees Celsius compliant targets, which is sort of the stretch goal of the Paris Agreement. Why do they not have those targets? What are the political and economic uh, impediments in those countries to doing them? And try and provide them with those tools. That's what the JetP process is. That's what a lot of other countries are engaged in, is trying to crack the code. Because all of these countries face the same kind of challenges. They have inflation challenges, development challenges, hostile neighbors, and then the rolling impacts of the climate crisis itself are also an added cost, basically a drag on all of this progress. So that's why people, you know, John Kerry refers to this as the decisive decade. If you don't get the calculus right mm -hmm. this decade, it's not really going to matter because you will have lost so much time. The threshold closes and becomes narrow and narrow. So you really want to make sure you don't want to alarm people, but you want to make it clear that we have wasted a lot of time up until now. Mm -hmm. We should have been doing this starting in the 90s and we did not. We should have been doing it much earlier. But once we had a diplomatic framework to accomplish this starting in the early 90s, we should have taken action much quicker. Well, even though that was an invigorating conversation, we don't want to leave you guys hanging with our key segment of our podcast, the dumb questions. Whoop, whoop. And today I have the honor of being the person posing the dumb question, <laughs> following our wonderful interview uh, with Dory on uh, climate finance and climate impacts. Um, and greenwashing, I admitted my own fatal flaw in terms of my oversized collection of fast fashion clothing items, my sincere addiction to buying new clothes for every single event I ever do, and then keeping them, hoarding them, uh, because I'm afraid to throw them away because I'm kind of tertiarily aware of the warming effects that these uh, the clothes can have and also the economic impacts of exporting used clothing to developing countries or lower income countries in terms of undermining their textile industry's ability to actually compete with with free clothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, admittedly, I don't know the answer to this. I really want to understand what is the, the true climate impact 
of um, fa the fast fashion industry and uh, particularly you know, the impact of my individual decisions in this space. <laughs> so I can sleep a little bit better at night. Hopefully Amethyst has the answer for me. Well, I will say that I am not Elle Woods. I did not get a degree in fashion. So um, I know of it in a sustainability sense. And, and in particular, like I really want to acknowledge that we have to come at this type of a question and issue as one that is a systems approach. So we really have to think about this as like a, a circular economy type of approach of fashion isn't going anywhere like fashion is a way that humans like to express ourselves and like you said buying new outfits for certain things um and i think that it also would take a lot of people by surprise to recognize that um the the fashion industry especially looking at fast fashion is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and there are a lot of studies that attribute it to about seven to ten percent of our global greenhouse gas emissions on an annual basis wow. Um, and this is because of the way that um, you have to you have to get the resources, right? You have to get the cotton or get the other type of textiles that you're going to use. You have to manufacture them. You have to dye them. You go throughout this process, and you have to take into consideration the holistic, like you ship those goods. Um, and so we really just have to be super thoughtful, like you're you're being, um, about what we do with these um, these articles of clothing once we're done with them and ready for them to move on. So. I think that you know you pointed out the donation, and I think that it, it is like noteworthy that um, Goodwill, one of the largest, obviously like places that accepts donations for this type, they say that um, uh, typically about 30 to 48 percent of the clothing that gets donated to them actually does get sold, like in their in their stores, um, storefronts, and then from there, that's the type of the clothing that's like not necessarily in good repair or it just doesn't move because you donated it like 20 years after it was in fashion. Um, those are the types of things that go then out to their outlets. They're, they're being sold in bulk um, by kind of like by the pound. I don't know if you guys have ever been outlet shopping Goodwill. It's very fun. Um, but this is like unfortunately where the system gets a little less transparent. So that all depends on the regionality where these hubs are, how their distribution centers handle this type of thing, what companies are there buying these like these materials, and that's when it does it can get either like closer to the landfill or it gets exported into these other countries. All right, thanks Amethyst and thank you for tuning in. Get ready for more fascinating insights from Jesse in our next episode. Follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to stay updated on our latest episodes. Remember, stay green and stay healthy. Until next time. <laughs>